I'm Gabe Oatley, the co-host of Pull Quotes. And I'm Rahaf Farawi, the other half of Pull Quotes, the podcast where we take you behind the scenes of Canada's top long-form stories. Rahaf, your voice sounds different today. Are you ill? Uh, well, other than the fact that I've almost completely lost my voice, I, I think I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. <laughs> okay, so you are ill and you have lost your voice, but you're okay. Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay, excellent. Um, okay, well, in addition to the big news that you have lost your voice, uh, the other hot goss on the podcast today is that it is the final episode of our season. Yeah, it is. I can't believe it. How are you feeling about it? Do you feel sad? Yeah, actually, I I think I do. Uh, <laughs> how do you feel? I am also sad. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I've I've loved uh, getting a chance to work with you and the other members of our uh, pod squad, and um, you know, we've just gotten a chance to like interview such um, thoughtful and insightful journalists. Agreed, but to be fair, we still have a special surprise coming up for listeners. Uh, Exciting. Yeah, so folks should stay (laughs) tuned and find out what that surprise is. But before that, Gabe, who did you chat with this week? Yeah, this week uh, we've got Anori Roy on the podcast. Anori is an associate editor at The Local, um, and she does a lot of long-form feature work with a big focus on labor and the environment and education. And uh, she's published in spots like the Toronto Star, the Narwhal, and CBC. Cool. Uh, what'd you chat about? We talked about her investigation that she published in September in the local called Somebody's Gonna Get Hurt. Um, In the story, she looks at the declining rates of um, health and safety investigations in Ontario over the past decade. Um, And she talks about uh, her process for tracking down um, like journalist shy sources in particular Mm -hmm. investigators um, didn't really want to talk to her for this story for obvious reasons. And she talks about um, all the different avenues she tried and what ultimately worked. Um, So a helpful, uh, helpful bit of context for folks who are like struggling to find sources for features Mm -hmm. uh, that they might be working on. And um, she also talked about how um, it was ultimately sleuthing mm-hmm. through uh, Ontario's open data portal that um, sparked the idea for this story. Wow. Okay, well, what a great way to kind of end off the season. I'm looking forward to hearing it. Awesome. Let's play it. All right, Anori, hello, welcome. So great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So Anori, to get things started, um, can you tell us about Mark Dennis, who is the main character and your piece, and um, what happened to him such that he would be featured in a story like this? Yes, absolutely. So Mark Dennis was a transportation worker at the University of Guelph. Um, He used to transport things around campus. It could be something small like mail. It could be something massive like a lab fridge. Mm -hmm. Um, And he'd been working there for, you know, for decades and decades. He'd been a a loyal employee. Um, And over the course of his time at the University of Guelph, in his job, he noticed that he was, him and his team were assigned tasks uh, relating to transport that, you know, they didn't have the capacity to do, like 
They were expected to transport things that were incredibly heavy up several sets of stairs or um, across sort of construction riddled campuses. And basically they weren't given the right equipment and sometimes the right training to be able to do the jobs that they were expected to. Mm. Um, And so on multiple occasions, he tried uh, bringing that up very gently to his manager um, and had been told, you know, oh, it's, you know, we've made commitments. It's going to be okay. We always get it done. That's because you guys are such good employees. Um, And so over the course of, of the past few years, Years, you know, he had noticed that sort of start to increase. Um, and it came to a head when uh, they received a new shipment of trucks that they were supposed to use. Uh, and the trucks uh, didn't have manuals that came along with them. Hmm. And so there was a new uh, system of hydraulic uh, tailgates that they had to operate without any formal training or a manual to go by. Um, and when he was operating the truck's tailgate one day to transport soil across campus, um, the skid of soil that he was, uh, he was expected to, to transport threatened to topple onto him when he was moving it. Hmm. And so he fell, he jumped off of the the tailgate of his truck and on the landing broke his leg. Um, And that led to, uh, you know, having to, having to take several several months off work and having to take some serious medication. And unfortunately, a few months later, he actually passed away of a medication, a complication related to the medication that he was taking. He died of a bleeding ulcer uh, because of the medication that he was on. Huh. Yeah, it's such a, it's such a tragic story. I mean, yeah. um, nobody should die because of the work uh, that they're doing at their workplace. Um, and it, your, your story shows that inspections at um, industrial workplaces in Ontario fell nearly 30% in the last decade. Um, A situation which uh, I think you suggest in your piece could be creating the conditions for more injuries um, like the one that Mark experienced. I think it's a super important story. And I'm just curious, like, where you came up with the idea for a piece like this. Of course. So this was actually the result of of the practice that I enjoy the most when it comes to story development, which is that I just opened up the provincial uh, open data portal and I just started looking through the data sets that they had available to see what was interesting. Um, So this was like five months before I pitched the story out. It was, it was in December of 2020 and I was, I was looking through and I found these sort of separately maintained data sets regarding uh, workplace inspections, workplace health and safety orders, rates of injuries and rates of deaths. And so, I put all of that together and Hmm. just did like very simple math to see what the trends were over time. Um, And these data sets went back quite a way. Uh, And so, you know, looking at the trends together, I realized that, you know, we were seeing an increase in injuries and a decrease in inspections and orders. And those two things, you know, seem to have a little bit to do with each other. And so from there, uh, the story really started to build up and I was able to get more information and and even further back data from from the province. And, And it started to put together this picture of a, a, a workplace health and safety culture that was really being eroded and in which um, inspections were just falling really quickly and inju- injuries were going up really severely mm. um, and that work workers were essentially being um, really... The, the responsibilities that the province has to, to workers, especially in the industrial sector, those responsibilities weren't being met. Hmm. The, I mean, I think that's just so fascinating that like you were literally just looking at the open data portal and at different data sets, like, had you gotten a tip off that this had, you know, these inspections had been going down? Or was it literally just like, you know, you could have looked at like traffic like data, and instead you decided to look at like inspection data? Yeah, it's really just it was really just looking at the at the data, because I, 
I hadn't received a tip off. Um, I, I just, you know, I'm interested in labor reporting. I have a relatively, or like my, I'm relatively early in my career, but labor is something I care very deeply about and wanted to do more reporting on. So in the place where you can filter your data sets, I just clicked on the sort of labor subcategory and something like beautiful came out of that one move. Wow, cool. And okay, so you, you do this like data mashup, you start to see an interesting trend. Where did you go from there in terms of your reporting and sort of like, where did pitching this story fit in? Was it initially like, okay, I've found this thing, I'm going to pitch it right away? Or did you do some more legwork before you pitched it? So yeah, so it's actually, I kind of kept this in my back pocket for a little bit before even starting to work on it, because I, I came upon it at a time when I did have a few other projects on the go. And so it just, it just sort of sat in the back of my head as a a promise that I would never run out of a story because I would always have this sort of backup story on the go. Right. And so, um, yeah, I I had it in mind. And then I, I heard from the editors at the local that they were going to be, their upcoming issue was going to be on on the theme of labor. Mm. And so from there, I, was, I realized that this was the, the perfect moment. And so I started developing the story at that point when I knew I had somewhere to pitch it to. Mm. Um, and at that point, I you know started to speak to primarily union folks. Those were the people, first people that I reached out to um, and just started to do more research on uh, the like incredible labor reporting that some other uh, folks, especially the Toronto Star has done in terms of, of labor um, legislation and regulation in the past few years. And so from there, I started to get a sense of, okay, so we sort of have these figures in mind. We know that they exist, but we haven't actually covered this particular data set mm. um, ever. You know, there's been there's been so much data collected and it's not being used. Uh, and so from there was able to find the human angle because, you know, I was, I was fortunate that a lot of people wanted to talk about uh, the issue of, of health and safety inspections. And while it was difficult at first to get people who were personally impacted and had lived experience because, you know, people feel a sense of vulnerability when they speak about their working conditions. And so nobody really wanted to talk, um, knowing that their employer would probably be unhappy with them if they spoke publicly. But then coming coming to Mark Dennis's story and, and getting to hear from his union leader that, you know, this series of events had happened and then getting to speak to his family who was so open and caring and really wanted the story told, hmm. these factors, like, they really helped move the process along. Hmm. And was it uh, through the union that you learned about Mark Dennis and, and his story in the first place? Yeah, that's right. So the, the former president of that particular union at the time, Janice, she was very good friends with Mark. And so she huh. sort of the story, the, the Mark's story was at first mentioned to me sort of slightly offhandedly by, um, by a person from the union being saying that they, you know, they might have someone in mind, but they needed to check with the family first. Um, and then they connected me with Janice, who is a good friend of the family and who, who told me about the story in greater depth. And then I was connected with, with Mark's family. And so there were a number of people who had sort of been struck by the, the magnitude of an incident like that. And the way that, you know, something as, seemingly innocuous as, as having a bad feeling about the lack of training you've been given could eventually turn into experiencing it so severely firsthand and could lead to someone's death. Mm -hmm. um, and so there are a lot of people who, who, you know, mentioned it in passing before we came to a point where we realized that we all wanted to, to share, like the story, they wanted it to be shared and I really wanted to spotlight it and it, it came to be the forefront of this piece. Interesting. Yeah, I was curious about sort of your, um, your focus on Mark's story for this piece. Um, uh, 
I, I feel like there's been some really great labor coverage of workplace health and safety issues in other sorts of workplaces. I'm thinking about um, Sarah Mozahedzadeh's reporting um, for the Star covering uh, situations at like Fiera Foods, which is an industrial bakery, or at Amazon, um, for instance. And I was curious because, you know, Mark worked at the University of Guelph, um, where I think most people would just think about students and teachers. Um, and I thought it was really interesting to see, uh, yeah, a worker in that environment who works in like less of a visible um, part of that institution. And, you know, some of the challenges uh, that they might have in terms of workplace health and safety issues. And I guess I'm curious um, in terms of what you were keen to highlight in this story, why um, why Mark felt like sort of a good character or like a central person to like focus on for a piece like this? Yeah, that is an excellent question because it's something that I haven't really like spoken about with, with many people, but really part of the reason that Mark's story moved me so much was because you sort of start to realize when you hear about a situation like that, that... Um, People like Mark are everywhere, mm. and jobs like the job that Mark was doing are everywhere. Um, in the months after I started working on the story, I would just walk around this, you know, I'd be like going grocery shopping, and I'd see like a window cleaner, or even just like a, someone who was like doing maintenance, and I would see that, you know, someone who was like drilling into the concrete wasn't wearing a uh, protective masks, you know, they were inhaling the dust coming off the concrete. Or I remember one time I was seeing a person who was cleaning a first floor window and who had gotten like their their uh, harness had gotten sort of slightly tangled and they were just dangling there for, for a few minutes trying to figure out how they were going to get down. And just seeing these situations where uh, things that we might take for granted on a day-to-day -day basis actually have so much to do with workers' health and safety. Um, you start to see it all around you. And that was one of the things I really wanted to impress upon, that when we think about industry, we think massive machines, mm -hmm. manufacturing that could like tear your limbs off and, you know, people, you know, getting their hands stuck in machines and, you know, really intense and extreme workplaces, which are, of course, something that we need to be concerned about and the places where health and safety like absolutely should be at the forefront. But it's also, you know, about we're using this new truck, but we have no idea how to operate it. And we're lifting like 400 pound loads, but we don't have the right sorts of equipment and we haven't been given the right training. And one sort of, one instant of seeing something, you know, falling towards you and, and being like, okay, what am I going to do to get out of the situation could lose you, your, your leg, your work, your life ultimately. And that was really, that was really a part of it is that I think it is so crucial to talk about people who are um, vulnerable in the most intense ways. And Sarah has done a really incredible job with that. She's one of the, in my opinion, she's one of the best journalists out there in the country today. Mm. Um, and But I think that it's also, we don't really get opportunities to see how it affects every one of us in a different way. Mm. Um, and I think that that's something we need to start thinking about more is that you know, when we talk about a lack of inspections and orders in health and safety, it could impact like our family members, it could impact people sort of across the spectrum. Um, and we need to be thinking about it in a more uh, compassionate, holistic, um, and equitable way uh, mm -hmm. than we are right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in, in addition to Mark's 
brother, um, you also quote uh, one former Ontario Health and Safety Inspector in the piece. Um, mm-hmm. uh, give you give him a pseudonym, um, given that uh, all health and safety inspectors sign NDAs, and obviously he was reticent to speak with you publicly um, for that reason. I'm curious how you found uh, that source, and sort of more broadly. Uh, what approaches you use in finding sources who are like industry insiders who may really not might want to talk to you, but might feel like they really cannot talk to you? Yeah, um, that was a it was it was a struggle to some degree uh-huh. to find uh, folks who are internal to the industry. I actually, you know, there was someone who I had spoken to for a previous story who sort of mentioned in passing that they were part of the the health and, not health and safety, that particular person uh, who sort of I first tried to contact um, was an environment inspector. And Mm. so I sort of started by, it started there. I was like, okay, I know this person, they trust me. Maybe I can ask them if they have any connections relating to the health and safety inspector world. And, you know, from inspectors in particular, they there's a sense that they, you know, have to have not loyalty maybe, but like there's a sense of obligation and duty and responsibility in their jobs. And it's something that people take incredibly seriously. And so there was a lot of, um, there, I had to cover ground in terms of the way that I talked about potentially criticizing the Ministry of Labor and, Mm. you know, who does that criticism fall towards? Mm -hmm. Uh, To what degree is the health and safety inspector a um, a person who is responsible versus a a person who is subject to the system? You know, like, where does that accountability fall? These were all questions that I Mm. had to very delicately figure out while trying to find my way to the source. Um, So eventually, (laughs) that first person that I had asked eventually was just like, you know what? No, I can't help you. We have a, we've like, we have a a duty to maintain to the province and speaking to journalists goes against that. And so there was a lot of that sort of pushback. And then I spoke to another person who initially was comfortable speaking and then later deferred to their union. And so there were a lot of folks, there was a lot of back and forth. There were folks who just, you know, eventually just decided they weren't comfortable with taking the conversation any further. So I was despairing quite a lot as to whether I would ever be able to, to get to the point of where I had an inspector on the record. Uh-huh. Um, and then this this particular inspector um, was the result of, I'm not going to speak too detailed because I don't want to reveal who it was, but they are a person who um, in their in their capacity as a, as a former inspector, like they, they had recently uh, come off of the job, but like a, as a person who was a former inspector, they had also advocated for better um, accountability within their job. And they had sort of, um, they had experience with uh, bringing, uh, bringing truth to light as to the mm. realities of their job. And uh, it was through a number of sort of, uh, a number of people recommending this person and um, a a sense that this person was enthusiastic enough about holding their workplace and their former employer accountable that they would be willing to sort of take the risk that comes with speaking to a journalist. Mm -hmm. And so very much like it was a matter of having spoken to, I mean, there's so many people that I spoke to for the story who weren't on the record. Mm -hmm. um, And there was so much that like, I wanted to say, but that I couldn't really say, but those, all of those folks I spoke to, I feel like at some point I started speaking to like 
Like, I started speaking to interviewees who would tell me, like, oh, yes, I, like, I've heard from five other people that you're asking these questions and that you're, like, around and looking into this. And so I started speaking to people who sort of all had a network with one another. And so it was through that network that I was able to find someone who was willing to take that risk. And I'm, I'm really appreciative that they were. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, like, for the most part, when you were trying to track down those inspectors, like, was that, you know, searching on LinkedIn, like, former employer you know, ministry of what's its health and safety inspector job title? Or like, was that going through other sources? Like what were sort of like your key methods for tracking those folks down? Yeah, I definitely tried the LinkedIn part. (laughs) It didn't work very well. Um, But I definitely, I tried LinkedIn. I tried um, Indeed because sometimes uh, they have like job reviews, uh, like from Mm -hmm. from former employees. And so I tried that. Um, But ultimately it was, it was the the folks who, it was uh, like going through other sources. It was going through sources who were, um, you know, sort of union or union adjacent um, or who had, you know, some amount of like they like they had a vested interest and they were sort of either advocating or were friends with people who were advocating or had you know reached out to to their their more vocal advocates around them uh, and so like through those those sort of main voices I could get to the people who weren't necessarily at the forefront of the public conversation but who were very much uh, fueling those conversations privately mm-hmm. uh, so yeah it was very much through like having people connect me with with uh, with other voices in the in the in the industries switching gears a bit I want to talk about how your piece dealt with the political decisions that led to these like reductions in inspections. Um, In your story, you write, quote, the problem isn't partisan. Both liberal and conservative provincial governments have pushed forward legislation and cuts that erode workers' existing health and safety protections. Um, I was interested, like, with that, uh, you weren't pointing the finger at any one government in particular. I mean, you were explicitly not doing that. Um, Yet in this piece, like you have this great graph that shows a really precipitous decline in inspections um, starting in 2008, 2009. And that would have been under Dalton McGinty's government. And I guess I'm just curious, like why you didn't go there in the story. Yeah, it was really interesting because I, I think you can... The, I think the reason that I didn't want to sort of dive too far into the history of this is because I think you could like pretty easily make an argument to take it back like several several decades like Mm. you could go you could go back like to the 50s like you could go really really far back um and and trace this back to you know more fundamental questions about like how do we see like what role do we see workers and like laborers and people in jobs that are taken for granted like how do we see them playing a role in our society like what value do we ascribe to them how much of a of a political say do they have in terms of shaping priorities um and so like it it felt a bit difficult honestly to find a place to stop Mm. and so there was a risk I think with this piece especially because it's, it's already quite long and um I'm always sort of I always get kind of nervous about, you know, when's, when would a reader stop reading? Right. Like, are they going to get to the end of the piece? Where is it going to drag on for them? And so I thought that, you know, we were talking about all of these, these current issues. We were talking specifically about the last couple of, uh, the, say, the last decade, maybe the last decade and a half specifically. Um, and I didn't want to run the risk of turning it into like a mm. a patchwork history of, of labor <laughs> realities, you know, uh. because because... 
I think any amount of sort of historical digging that you do that doesn't sort of follow a very specific thread, that doesn't really hone in on like specific instances, will end up just um, being like a, a patchwork of like, this is what this government did, and this is what this government did, and then we did this, and then we did this, mm. um, <laughs> without a sort of strong through line, without a uh, like really sort of narrowed down and focused in perspective and then I think like if you were to have a focused in perspective of here's what X government did to erode workers rights like that would be a piece on on its own right mm-hmm. that's a that's a whole feature in itself um, and so yeah there was a really a question of of whether that should be like a, a, a deeper section in, in the piece and um, I and I always I, I like to confer with with my editors on that and so for this particular piece I think that the priority was really finding, the on the ground voices, the contemporary voices, like incidents and experiences that had happened quite recently and uh, grounding it in the present because uh, of the knowledge that like any sort of digging into the past would unearth this whole other feature that, you know, can't live inside this this more intimate feature. Totally. Yeah. What, what you're saying there makes me think of something that one smart professor said in my first year of journalism school, essentially talking about how journalism can be thought of as like in like stalagmites or stalactites in a cave. I can never <laughs> remember which, but essentially those like hangy things that, yeah. you know, miser- mineral deposits create these cool little like cave icicles. And basically these, this idea that like with each story, you're like adding a little bit to the icicle and another story is going to come uh, that's going to build on top of like what you have have done ultimately such that we're getting more and more understanding of, of that issue. And I really appreciate the point you're making that like you can't do the whole cave icicle by yourself. <laughs> like you, yeah, <laughs> you're building on what others have written, what Sarah and others have written and like other folks are going to write, you know, other pieces based on what you've done. Um, Absolutely. That's a that's a really great way to put it. I really I I like that a lot. I think that it's a really lovely way to visualize what what we hope happens. And I think that, you know, there is a problem of like um, lack of access to historical context. I think that's been a that's something that really strikes me um, in the way that that reporting takes place. And so I do really value reporting that that puts that historical context in. Um, But I think also that um, there's a sense almost that you don't want to, I don't want to do an injustice to that, to that particular part mm-hmm. of the story. Right. And so it's very much like someone else or even like me at a later stage, like someone else could do a much better job of really diving into the, to that crux of it. And so, yeah, I, I it's been a, it's been an interesting journey uh, in learning to like really pick what you want your story to be about and in not just trying to do everything all at once. Totally. One of the things that you mentioned in terms of like your approach to writing is that, um, yeah, you, you take really seriously like the importance of having folks with lived experience in your stories. And um, that really comes through with sort of Mark as the central character and the voice of Jim, um, his brother. I'm, I'm curious um, what your process was for engaging with Jim in the lead up to publication. Um, I, I know like journalism professors and sort of like industry traditionalists are like horrified by the idea that you might show quotes or that you would show an entire story. Like um, some, some folks I think are like, yeah, truly horrified by that idea. I think some 
maybe younger journalists are like, maybe that's actually an ethical practice that I want to put in place. Um, I'm curious sort of like what your relationship um, looked like with Jim in the lead up to publication um, and afterward in terms of any sort of follow up or ongoing um, communication you've had with him. Yeah. Um, so I was very, I have to start off by saying I was really lucky because Jim is, is truly like was so giving during mm. this entire process. And it's not something that I really expected actually. And I think that has a lot to do with just the fact that like, I don't really interact with, with folks like Mark and Jim on a, on a day-to-day basis, like sort of older, uh, you know, men in like the trades or in, or in like the labor world or in the industrial world. Like I, I sort of, it felt like Jim and I existed in two different worlds. Mm -hmm. And so I was, I was going into the reporting process, you know, I had a lot of questions about how he would feel about speaking so publicly on this and, and, you know, we were, we're a small publication. And so would he want would he want me to tell the story or, or would he want someone even, you know, bigger to tell the story? Someone mm. who had a much bigger platform than we do or, you know, we never met each other in person, which is something that I still I still feel a little bad about. It was because it was during, you know, it was during the summer, but like COVID rates weren't great. And so mm. we did all of our interviews over the phone. Um, you know, we, we spoke often in the evenings after he'd come back from work. And so he would tell me like, I'm sitting here on the couch next to my wife and I'd, I'd hear his wife in the background. She was lovely as well. And so, um, there's, it was so interesting to be able to develop a, a camaraderie with him in terms of his, how open he was, how enthusiastic he was and how like willing he was to be really vulnerable about his relationship and about the impact that this experience had had on him. Hmm. And so um, I, I never had to show him quotes. He never asked for that. Um, I think if he had shown them, I would have, uh, I would have, I would have said no. I think that um, showing quotes is something that's very, very tricky. I try. I, I, I almost never. I would say I never do it. I, hmm. I can't remember the last time I had to. Um, I can understand cases where people feel the need to ask. I can understand journalists who who feel like they are willing to do it. I, I don't have any sort of judgment towards that. Uh, personally, I didn't have to do it in this case because Jim was really, really trusting and, and very kind. Mm. Um, and yeah, we had, uh, we had, we sort of had this initial call um, where we were just like feeling out the process and, and what it would be like. But right from the start, he was incredibly open and, and vocal. And um, as it, as it went, you know, we sort of, we started like having calls where, he would just tell me about his relationship with Mark and things that they had done. Like there would be entire sort of half hour, one hour calls that like from which like nothing that he said I could be included in the piece, not because it wasn't valuable. It was incredibly valuable, but just because of like word count. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so like there were these entire conversations that were just for, for background and to be able to get a sense of him and Mark's relationship and who Mark was as a person. And there was something like really, difficult about trying to write about Mark, but knowing that I could never speak to him. Like that was really hard. There was a while where I grappled with whether he should even be the main character because he like couldn't speak for himself. And so all I had was what Jim could remember of Mark's conversations. Luckily he, he remembered them very well from, from what I understand, because I, I would sort of um, confirm with Mark's daughter as well. Like, do you remember the conversation going this way? And she, she would say sort of verbatim the same thing that, that Jim said and uh. You know, they would have a, a really nice sort of collective memory because they they all spent so much time together, um, and so I grappled with that question of whether it whether I'm even doing like accurate storytelling by not 
by including, you know, the words of someone who, who can't speak to me and, and can't tell me himself. Um, but Jim was the ideal person to sort of be that surrogate voice because he was so open and honest and like reliable. Like you could, you could confirm that the things he said were, were true and that had happened Hmm. and was just, yeah, it was just really generous in every way. And so I think that, um, it's rare that you find a source like that. And I think Mm -hmm. the story would have been completely different if he hadn't been so open. Um, but I also know that that's, you know, sometimes sources aren't like that. Sometimes they do really worry about, about the story that's being told about a family member and and they do ask to see quotes. And I think that's a question that a lot of people grapple with. And, uh, yeah, I, I think that it's, it's an ongoing conversation that we need to have as an industry. Hmm. Anor, this was a blast. Thanks so much for making the time to tell me about this story. I, uh, I super appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. All right. And that is your episode of the podcast for this week and the last episode of Pull Quotes for this season. The podcast is published by the Review of Journalism at X University. Our show hosts are Rahaf Farawi and me, Gabe Oatley. Our podcast team also includes Andrew Oliphant and Annika Foreman. Technical audio support for this pod is provided by Angela Glover, and web support is by Lindsay Hanna. Our executive producer is Sonia Fata, and music is by Harrison Ammer. Thanks so much for listening, and see you soon.